Amen. So we uh, here at U City Family Church are, we started with the book of Mark and we're going straight through the book of Mark. We're in the book of Mark chapter 9. And today we're going to do chapter 9 verses 42 through chapter 10 verse 16. Okay? Uh, so you can follow along up on the screen. Whoever causes, this is Jesus speaking, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came uh, came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, uh, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Maybe we should pray again, because there's a lot in there. Uh, okay, so we're going to jump right into this, uh, this passage and unpack it and drill down through it and see if we can't understand what it is that Jesus is teaching us in this very, uh, very rich passage um, and see if, it's, if there's not something in here that we can apply to our own lives. Um, as many of you know, well, well, first I'll say this. If you'll notice in the passage, it begins with a reference to children. And it ends with a reference to children. The very first line in the passage, Jesus says, if uh, you cause a little one to sin, it would be better than a millstone to be hung around your neck and you thrown into the sea. And then he ends by saying, uh, uh, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he is, this entire passage is sort of being couched and being uh, bookended by these references to children. And we're going to get into, I think, why, why he teaches it that way and why it's written that way. Um, uh, and the, the first is is because I think with the, with the reference to the, to the millstone, he knows that um, that when the child is hurt, 
He knows that this is very evocative language. He knows that when a child is hurt, that is going to stir up a very deep, deep part of ourselves. And I'm going to tell you a little prank that was pulled on me this week. If any of you know, if any of you were here on April 1st, you know that um, my wife played a very cruel prank on me. Um, that morning, she she put a Facebook post saying, it's true, we're pregnant. And so I came to church and people started congratulating me. And I said, for, for what? And then I called her and they said, well, because of the Facebook message. I called her and she goes, April Fool's. And I go, April Fool's? There's like a thousand people reading this, this post right now. I got a call from my mom that afternoon uh, saying, hey, what is going on? I hope I didn't find out that you're pregnant through Facebook. I'm like, no, mom. Here, I actually, what I did, I said, don't talk to me, talk to this person. And it off the phone. So I got another terrible prank pulled on me this, this week. My sister, Christy, who lives in Twin Falls, Idaho, sent me a text message. And the text message was a, a sort of a profile picture of my 11-year-old niece, Whitney. And in the picture, Whitney had a black eye and a, like a really serious bruise on her cheek and a really serious bruise on her neck. And the text message, and I quote, said, quote, she is okay. She was involved in an incident at school. Drew and I are meeting with parents and principal tonight. And by the time I got to that point and looking at the picture, I'm ready to get into an airplane, fly to Twin Falls, Idaho, and see who messed with my niece. Then, an ellipse, dot, 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 just kidding, drama class, stage makeup, smiley face. I'm like, you know what? I texted back, not cool. <laughs> Apparently, they sent this text to Drew, my brother-in-law, um, without the just kidding drama class. And he was literally ready to leave his office and storm down to school. So when, when, a, when a child is hurt, or we think a child is hurt, that immediately triggers a response in us. You know, even, even, even prisoners, in, you know, if, if someone is, is convicted of a crime against a child, they'll often put them in a separate wing of the prison because even prisoners have very little tolerance, very low patience for someone who commits crimes against children. So Jesus is using this evocative language at the very beginning to grab our attention and says, hey, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck if you're going to harm a little child. I've got a picture of a, of a millstone here. Um, this is a first century millstone. And this is the equivalent of Jesus saying, you know, the old mafia concrete shoes uh, kind of deal. He's like saying, look, those things, I, I actually looked, and they, the very small ones weigh about 100 pounds. The big ones weigh over 10,000 pounds. So Jesus was using this very sort of exaggerated you know, hyperbole to say, hey, don't harm little kids, okay? Don't make them sin. Um, what else I think he's doing in this passage, by using these children references at the beginning and the end, is that this entire text, this entire very dense text that we just read, is, can be summed up with the theme of purity of heart. He wants us and pushes us to achieve these things that he's describing in this text because he wants an innocence, a purity, a radical transformation of our heart. He's interested in, in behavior modification. He doesn't want us to sin, but he wants that behavior change in our life to be the logical and natural consequence of a totally transformed, renewed, and restored heart. He wants to bring us back to a purity of heart. That's what he came to do. Um, if you remember, uh, you know, throughout the book of Mark, Mark is basically divided. It's, it's a play in two acts. There's the first act. The first act is about who is Jesus. 
Who is he? And that comes up over and over again in stories and in the parables. Who is he? And in chapter 8, if you remember, Peter answers that question. Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, you're right. The Christ, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the one who has come to transform the world, to make things right, to, to, to rule over the world, to become king and change our, and change our world. Uh, and then the second act is, so what do we do with this? What do we do? How do we respond to him? And Jesus' answer to that is, follow me. Become like me. Follow me. Um, and so the rest of this book, we are learning what it means to be followers of Christ. And what Jesus is saying is, what it means to be a follower of me doesn't mean that you are following a set of rules. It means that you tra- your heart is being transformed by my sacrifice and, by, and, and I'm restoring you to the ideal that God wants for you. It's not about following the rules. It's about a total transformation of your life in pursuit of the ideal that God has for you. That's what Jesus is saying. So in this passage, there are dozens of themes that we could talk about. We could literally hang on this passage for a year that we read today. Um, And many of you are going to be glad that we don't, uh, (laughs) including me. But I want to just draw out three themes that I see in the passage, and there are many others, but I want to draw out three key themes that I see in this passage. And they are this. Number one is guard your heart. Number two is examine your heart. And number three is open your heart. Guard your heart, examine your heart, open your heart. These are three themes that I find coming up out of this passage. Um, So let's start at the very first theme, guard your heart. my, so at my, at my house, I have this huge gum tree right in, uh, right in the, in the, in the uh, sweet gum tree, right in the middle of my, at the front of my lawn. And this sweet gum tree has this huge canopy, and the canopy totally covers the entire lawn. There's absolutely no lighting. We pulled into the, to the driveway the other day. I, I said to Rebecca, I go, look, there's like no light coming on our lawn, no light. So what that means is that it's very difficult to grow grass. But it's very easy to grow weeds. And so last year, I have a, I have a neighbor who uh, has an immaculate lawn. Um, and he uh, and I decided, I think maybe at his urging, he was trying to sell his house. I think he was trying to say, hey, you know, maybe you ought to make your lawn look a little nicer. <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, I can do that. So we hired one of these guys to come out and, and use one of those machines to poke holes, aerate your lawn. And so poked holes in the lawn. Bought the Kentucky bluegrass seed, you know, spread it all around, fertilized it, watered it, did the whole thing, did it right, okay? Little tiny, little tiny things of grass, blades of grass grew up, but within, literally within a week or two, all of the weeds that are in my yard, the, the, the thistles and the dandelions and the clovers and all of the milkweed or whatever it is, choked it out, completely choked it out. And so... There was very little grass left. What I've done this year is I've learned that if you cut all of the weeds at the same height and you stand back far enough and sort of squint, it actually kind of looks like grass. <laughs> it really does. Now, if you're up close, you can see. But from a, you know, I go across the street and I go like this. I go, you know what? It's green. It's all the same height. It sort of looks like grass. I'm not going to be able to grow grass in that yard unless and until... I totally exterminate the weeds. They've got to go. They've got to come up by the root if I'm going to be able to grow grass. Okay? Um, Jesus, in this 
passage where he's saying, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Let me just, just you know, put this out there. He's not speaking literally here. He does not physically want you, anyone to do any sort of physical amputation to their body. Okay? He is speaking in this sort of exaggerated Aramaic hyperbole. He's trying to drive home a point by using this highly metaphorical language. How, how do you know he doesn't want you to actually cut your hand off? Because if you steal with one hand and you only have one hand left, you can steal with the other hand. I mean, he's not saying, it's, not, it's not a matter of your, your physical members. It's a matter of your heart. Okay? Um, he's challenging us to pull out those things in our lives that choke out who he wants us to be. He's challenging us to exterminate those things in our lives that, that diminish our strength, that diminish our hope, that diminish our ability to have good relations with one another. Do you know how sin debilitates you? Have you noticed that when, you're, when you sin, you're weakened? You're weakened by it. It doesn't give you strength. It weakens you. It doesn't give you freedom. It actually entraps you. And a little bit of sin traps you a little bit, but it leads you into greater sin where you're trapped. Sin is a trap. And Jesus is saying, I want you to pluck that out, not because I want you to be a dour, you know, sad, ascetic monk type person, but I want you to have a full, abundant, fruitful life where you are engaged in the kinds of things that bring you joy and that bring God glory. That's what he's trying to get you to do and trying to get us to do. He wants us to guard our heart, pluck out those things in our heart that lead us astray. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the, the 17th century mathematician and physicist, he says, we can only know God well when we know our own sin. And those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified him, but have glorified themselves. He's basically saying, if you don't know yourself, if you don't know that your heart is corrupt, then you don't really know who you are. You don't really know who you are. Um, Soren Kierkegaard is a, is a writer that I love, and he says purity, he's a Danish philosopher from the 19th century, he says purity of heart is to will one thing. He has a book by that title, and I remember years ago I would read that title, just the title of that book convicted me, because I, purity of heart is to will one thing. What is that one thing that I will with my heart? What is that one thing that you will with your heart? What is it that your heart desires? What is it that is the aim and focus and thrust of your life? Is it fame, money? What is it? Is it to follow God? Is it to honor God? Is it to seek God? Is it to glorify God? Is your heart aimed at that purpose? And if it is, you're following Christ. And if it isn't, there has to be a transformation. There has to be a, 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 an alteration of your focus. Um, in First uh, John, First John one seven ten says, "But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light." We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John, uh, the, 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 the epistle is saying, if you, if you say you're not sinning, you're committing the sin of lying, at least, okay? Uh, and, and what Christ is trying to do and what his point on earth was and his point on, uh, in our lives is to purify us, to purify our hearts. 
He does that. We can't do that. He does that, and then we guard our hearts. He purifies us by his blood, by his sacrifice, and then we guard our hearts. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. You see, again, every time we're talking about sin, we're talking about a state of the heart. A state of the heart. When it's hard, and, we're, and, and, it, and it becomes hard, as this passage points out, by the concealment of those things, of our sins. When we conceal it, it hardens and calluses our heart. But when we confess it, when we open it up, when we tell somebody, tell somebody about the sin that you're struggling with. Make sure that it's a person that you have a lot of confidence in and they'll keep it confidential, whatever. But open your heart. Confess the sins in your heart to somebody so that you can begin to get restoration and begin to get healing. Um, We're going to skip the next uh, uh, verse because I want to get on down to um, the next part. But I want to say, with this, with this guard your heart, know that we're not going to have a totally sinless life immediately when you become a follower. Jesus suddenly, bang, you're a super righteous man. That's not going to happen. We're going to struggle with sins. We're going to struggle with habits. We're going to struggle with patterns that we've developed over the years. And we're not going to become a model of sainthood immediately. But Jesus is challenging us to weed out those things in our lives that weaken us, diminish our joy, hamper our ability to look one another in the eye with confidence. And he wants to restore our integrity. He wants to restore our wholeness. He wants to build you into a pillar of strength and confidence and joy. Why? Because that glorifies him. It glorifies him. Uh, So guard your heart. Point number one. Number two, examine your heart. Now, here's where we get into the Pharisees come, and so Jesus is talking. The Pharisees come, and the scripture says they came to test him, and they said, Rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And in Matthew, they say, uh, expand on a little bit and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Two things are going on in this passage, okay? Jesus, as, you, as, as I said before, he's not, he has not said, okay, folks, all come together. We're going to have a discussion about divorce. He didn't do that. He's responding to a question from the Pharisees who have an agenda. Two things are going on. If you remember back um, in Mark chapter maybe four-ish, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, confronted Herod Antipas. And, 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 and because Herod Antipas had gone over to his brother Herod Philip's house, and taken his wife, and they divorced, and, and Herod Antipas stole Herod Philip's wife. Do you remember that? Um, and what complicates is, is that Herod Ant- the, the, the wife, Herodias, was actually their niece. And so when Herod Antipas seduced Herodias, he was seducing his sister-in-law niece to become his wife. So it's very messed up, okay? Um, the Herodian family will make your family and my family look Okay, uh, so John the Baptist, remember, called him out and said, you know, you're doing something wrong. You're taking your brother's wife. This is unlawful. And this really bugged Herodias, as you might under- as you might imagine. So they had John the Baptist thrown in jail. And then later, while John the Baptist was in jail, Herod had a party. He got drunk with his friends. He said, uh, and then 
Herodias' daughter came in and did some sort of provocative dance for him, and, he's, and, he, and he said, he liked it so much, he said, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And then she ran out and said, Mom, what should I ask for? And Mom said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. So Salome runs back in and said, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter, and that's what she got. So um, it, was a, it was a very twisted tale, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. But the point was, the Pharisees were saying, hey, let's ask Jesus what he thinks about divorce right here under Herod Antipas's, you know, rule, because if he says the wrong thing, then we're done with Jesus. Herod's going to have him arrested, and he's gone. So they're testing Jesus on that level. The other thing they're doing is, and, and I'm gonna, this is going to get a little bit nerdy and geeky, okay? Because it's going to get a little bit uh, um, detailed. But hang with me, okay, because it's worth it. Uh, the other thing is, that's going on is that there was a rip-roaring debate in the first century on this issue of divorce, okay? There is a passage in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4. And this is the passage where Moses, and there's more to this passage, but basically Moses says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, and send her from his house. So this was a, 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 a scripture in Deuteronomy from part of the Old Testament law, and there were two schools of thought in the first century that were trying to interpret this passage, okay? There was the school of Hillel, and there was the school of Shammai. Okay, these are two big-time rabbis. The Hillelites and the Shammites were, were followers of Hillel and, and Shammai. And go ahead and throw that back up, Susan, real quick. And what they were trying to figure out is, this is, this is, this is a legal interpretation 101. So they said, okay, what does this term indecent mean? So, so when can we, basically they're saying, under what circumstances can we get rid of our wife? Well, if, if she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. So these two schools of thought said, okay, well, what does indecent mean? And they took very different approaches to it. The term indecent, okay, now here's where it gets a little nerdy. I don't know what you were doing this Saturday, Friday, Saturday night, but this is what I was doing, okay? Um, indecent, the Hebrew word for indecent is ervat kavod, which means nakedness of a thing. It's, it's two words that means indecent, nakedness of a thing. So these two rabbis, Rabbi Hillel took that, uh, sorry, Rabbi Shammai took this phrase indecent, and he focused on the term nakedness. And so his perspective was, Moses is only is saying that you can only divorce someone because of some kind of immorality. It has a fairly narrow view of, of the terms under which a divorce could happen. Am I totally boring, you guys? I'm totally okay. All right. Um, so Shammai says there's a narrow, a narrow view of divorce. All right? Hillel comes along and says... He focuses on the thing. He says, it says indecent, uh, uh, you know, um, nakedness of the thing. And so Hillel had this very broad view of divorce, and he said, the nakedness of a thing could mean, you know, if, if they do something that's indecent about a thing. So like if they burn your soup, if your wife burns your soup, that's indecent, and you have grounds for divorce. So they had a very broad view. And basically, anything would fall under this view. You know, lawyers like to sort of just you know, take a word and go crazy. 
and that's what they're doing. So the Hillelites and the Shamites are debating, and that's what they that's what they're asking Jesus. They're saying, "Who do you agree with? Do you agree with Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai? Under what circumstances can a person divorce? When can we get rid of our wives?" Is what they're basically saying. Um, interestingly, one of Rabbi Hillel's disciples, Rabbi Akiva, focused on the phrase displeasing to him rather than the phrase indecent. And so under Rabbi Akiva's uh, understanding, basically, if your wife just became displeasing or if you found someone more pleasing, then you could divorce her. So, uh, you know, so there was this raging debate. They come to Jesus and say, what do you think about this? All right. Now, this is a little bit humorous as we're drilling down through this. But divorce is a very, very difficult, excruciating, challenging issue in our lives. Uh, everyone in here has either experienced it firsthand or has a friend or family member, someone in your life who's gone through a divorce. It just is a fact of life. Um, and it's painful, and it causes a great deal of pain. And um, there, are, while there are circumstances under which divorce is biblically um, warranted, the Bible is clear that God's plan was not for divorce. That's not what God wanted. And in fact, that's not what anyone who ever had a divorce wanted when they got married. That's not what they intended. That's not what they hoped for. And that's not what they wanted. What I find fascinating about this passage is that when they come to Jesus for this hyper-technical explanation about under what circumstance, sir, can we get divorced? Are you following Shalit, you know, Shammai, Hillel? You know, is it indecentness of the thing or is it the indecentness? What, what, what is it? Jesus turns around and he says, and, and, and he points out that the question they're asking is because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus says, Moses wrote you this law as a concession. He wrote you this law because of the hardness of your heart. And then he, he quotes Genesis, and I'll get there in just a minute. But what, he's, what he is saying to them is that I, you're asking me what is permissible. I want my followers to seek what is ideal. I don't want us to try to just see how close we can get to the edge of the rule. I want us to seek what God has for us. Um, he's not, again, he's not trying to just get us to change our behavior. He's trying to get us to transform our hearts. He doesn't want you following the rules. He wants you following him with your entire body, soul, and mind. Jesus, in response to their question, quotes Genesis 2, 18, 25. He says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Jesus is saying, I want us to try to strive for the ideal. Then he, he goes to Genesis. He, he's going back to Adam and Eve and saying, I want us to try to strive for what is the ideal in, in a marriage. He wants us to try to turn to our spouse with a deep love and a deep humility and a deep sense of forgiveness and, and a willingness to learn and grow and develop. Now, people have used that this passage to just hammer people that have been through divorce, and that's the improper way to use that passage, what you know, Jesus is saying. Jesus, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that God is, dislikes divorce, and everybody else does too. He doesn't want it. It's not what he desires. It's not what he hopes for. But if a person has been through it and struggled with it, 
he's also got an incredible amount of grace and love and acceptance and tenderness and willingness to open up the possibility um, of, of complete transformation and healing from that very difficult situation, okay? Uh, so I just want us to know that while, while Jesus clearly doesn't like divorce, he's also, a, a, he's also extensive mercy and his grace and covers all of our sins um, when we reach out and give him our heart, okay? Um, Jesus is saying, if you ever find yourself saying, well, technically I'm not breaking any rules, then you're already, you're already missing the point. All right. If you ha- if you ever start a phrase with technically, you're you're missing you're missing the point of what Jesus is is saying. Jesus is saying, I want your heart. Okay. Um, Ephesians five twenty five through thirty two. Uh, this is this is uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians, and and he is saying, husbands, this is this is an extension of what Jesus is trying to teach. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a huge, huge statement. I don't think there's any, again, this is the, this is the scripture asking us to pursue the ideal. Love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? That's huge. Can we do that? In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, quoting um, Genesis. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Jesus is saying, you know, look, you want to come to me to figure out under what circumstances can you get out of your marriage. And what I'm going to say to you is love your wife with all your heart. Seek the ideal. Of course, if some, you know, if, if, if it gets, and, and it talks, and it gives biblical reasons for divorce, but the ideal is not to divorce. The ideal is to love one another. Amen? Is that a fair assessment of that scripture? Um, so, I just think that Jesus has a way in this passage of, of, of turning it again from the technical, what's our behavior, what can we get away with, what can we get, you know, to what is the state of your heart? What is the status of your heart? Can you examine your heart? Because maybe you're asking this question because your heart is so hard. You know, if your wife burned your soup and you want to divorce her, maybe you shouldn't look at her cooking skills. Maybe you should look at your um, Thomas Kempis, the, the 15th century monk, Catholic monk, says, He who loves with purity considers not the gift of the lover, but the love of the giver. Not the gift of the lover, but the love of the giver. Uh, I want to challenge you today, as Jesus challenges all of us. Examine your heart. See if there's hardness in there towards someone else, towards your spouse or, your, or a friend or your family or your neighbor, a parent child, is there hardness in your heart towards someone else? Because if there is, then you can always find justification to treat them in one way or another. But God doesn't want us to treat people, to find justifications for our behavior. He wants us to change our hearts. Examine it. Soften our hearts towards others. Soften our hearts towards him. And then finally, the last 
you know, sort of large theme that comes out of this passage. Because um, that gets way too nerdy with all of the rabbi this and the rabbi that. No? Okay, was that interesting? Okay. Um, it was to me. It was, it was pretty interesting to me. Um, and the final one is open your heart. And this is where Jesus says, you know, let the little children come to me, for as such is the kingdom of, of, of God. And if you're not, if you don't become like a little child, you can't, you can't come into the kingdom of God. I'm going to tell you a riddle, and some of you have probably heard this riddle, okay? And if you know it, don't shout out the answer. Um, the riddle goes like this. Well, before I tell you the riddle, the idea of, so when I heard the riddle, I was told, and I, didn't, I couldn't find any substantiation for this, so take this with a grain of salt, um, that, the, that the riddle was given to a number of people, um, both children and adults, and the children were able to solve the riddle immediately, and the adults were not able to solve the riddle, okay? So I'm going to tell the riddle to you, and then I'm going to go out to the preschool and tell it to them and see who knows what. Um, here's the riddle. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil, the impoverished have it, the wealthy need it, and if you eat it, you'll die. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil, the impoverished have it, the wealthy need it, and if you, and if you eat it, you'll die. Anybody have any answers? <laughs> the answer is nothing. Charles, did you have it? Oh, okay, okay, Charles had it. The answer is nothing. What is greater than God? Nothing. What is more evil than the devil? Nothing. The impoverished have nothing. The wealthy need nothing. And if you eat nothing, you'll die. Uh, and when I heard this riddle and when it was told to me, it was told that children get this riddle immediately because they go, greater than God? But you can stop there. Nothing. That's the answer. Um, and, 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 and Jesus is saying, I want your hearts to be like the little child. Uh, Rebecca and I were with the kids this week at a park, and, um, and we were playing with Jameson and Lincoln, and this little boy walks up, and Jameson and I are playing on the slide, and the little boy just walks up and just starts playing with us. No, like, hi, how are you? My name is this or that. His name is PJ. But he just walks up and he starts playing with us. And pretty soon, his little sister, Tia, comes over, and she starts playing with us. And then his big sister, Asia, comes over, and she starts playing with us. And now, like all the neighborhood kids are coming, and suddenly there's 15 kids on the playground going down the slide on the monkey bars with the soccer ball, going crazy. And there was no, like, hey, do you mind if we play with you? There was no, there was just sort of this openness, this simplicity, this sort of innocence and purity, just like you're playing and we're playing and we should all play together. And they just sort of, everyone came together and they just played. And I was sitting there watching this happen, uh, and, I was, and I was playing too. But I was thinking, like, what, what is it about kids that God is trying to get us to be like? Because there are other things about kids that he doesn't want to, you know, kids pick their nose in public. He doesn't want to do that. Uh, there are things about kids that he doesn't want us to do. But he's trying, what, what is this childlikeness that he's trying to get us to do? What is that? Um, and I think there, it's a simplicity and a purity and an innocence in children that he wants our hearts to look like. Um, Children are teachable versus cynical. He wants us to be like that. He wants us to be humble versus arrogant. He wants us to be dependent versus self-willed, vulnerable versus callous, hopeful versus jaded, trusting versus always suspicious, honest versus cunning, open-hearted.
hearted versus distant and remote. He wants us to be like a little child. He wants our hearts to be pure and innocent and open. Uh, uh, Lyman Abbott, uh, an American Congregationalist theologian, says, and I like this quote, he says, Every life is a march from innocence through temptation to virtue or vice. From innocence through temptation to virtue or vice. We face this question every day. Do I take the virtuous road or do I take the vice? Do I take the virtuous road or do I take the vice? Uh, and if we take the vice, and we often do, all of us, we can be restored. Um, but we're always sort of having to make that we're always having to make that. We're always having to answer that question: Which path are we going to choose? Um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who's my favorite novelist, a Russian novelist, wrote uh, *Brothers Karamazov: Crime and Punishment*. Notes from Underground. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Also a Christian. Um, says, and I love this quote: "The soul is healed by being with children." Something about being around little kids. The other day, uh, when I was getting getting ready to, it was like a middle of the afternoon on a Saturday, I was going to take a nap, and Jameson lay down beside me, my three-and-a-half-year-old, lay down beside me, and I'm about half asleep, and Jameson says, Daddy? And I think, okay, he's going to, he means take me to the bathroom or something, and I go, yeah, and I'm about half asleep, and he goes, I love you. And I go, oh, well, I love you too, man. It was just the most, it was just what was on his mind. It was just the most sweet, simple, humble, open, little statement, and it just absolutely captured what I think Jesus wants out of us. He wants our hearts just to be pure, simple, and open and say, God, I love you. I need you. I want you. I want to be like you. I want to follow you. Um, Psalm 51, 10 and 11 says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. That's a great psalm for us, for us to pray. God, just, look, purify my heart. Cleanse my heart. Open my heart. Change my heart. Transform me. It's not something that we can do, but it's something that we can ask God to do, and he will do it. He will transform our hearts and make us pure and innocent and, and, and generous and open-hearted, just like he wants us to be. Um, I can just testify to, to a little bit of this in my own life because as a kid, and I've told this before, but as a kid growing up in church, you can get in a pastor's son and all that, you can see sides of church life and you can see things in people's lives that make you feel, uh, you know, that, that make you, you know, sort of, sort of suspicious. You can become calloused, and, and, and this happened to me. I became callous, angry, bitter, openly defiant. I didn't want anything to do with God. And thank God at some point he just reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm with you. I love you. I'm here with you. And I was able to, to, to open my heart back up to him. So if, it, if, if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself that your heart is too corrupt or it's been too broken or it's too callous to ever achieve that purity, that innocence to which Christ challenges his followers, Many of you have been through very hurtful life experiences. They've scarred you, they've burned you, they've hardened you. And you may think that Christ's message was for an earlier time, a more innocent time, a more gullible time, when things were simpler, but it's not available to you. I'm just going to tell you today that you 
because God's love, his grace, and his sacrifice can still melt today the hardest of hearts, just like it did in Jesus' time. He can melt your heart like wax. He can turn the hardest sinner from darkness to light. He can restore your innocence, renew your hope, and purify your heart if you'll only let him. So accept this challenge. If you're a follower of Christ or you want to be a follower of Christ or you're considering being a follower of Christ, accept this challenge. Guard your heart, examine your heart, and open your heart to God. I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, there's no magical incantation. There's no formula. But as we're praying today, just say in your own, in your own mind or in your, under your own breath, if you want, God, I need you. God, I'm open to you. I want you. And just see what opening the, the door just a little bit, just see what that does in your life this week. All right? Let's give our hearts to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for these uh, very challenging, this very challenging passage. We hope, God, that um, it will seep into our hearts. We hope, God, that we will learn from this today. Uh, and learn about the transformation, the possibility of transformation of our lives through your sacrifice and through your grace and through your love. Lord, be with us this week and give us courage and give us strength, Lord God, to choose the right when faced with two choices, vice or virtue. Give us the strength to choose the right. And when we fail, God, give us the knowledge, Lord, that you are there to forgive us and to restore us. Uh, to a right relationship with you. All these things we pray in Jesus' name.